This case, at first glance, reads more like a horror movie plot. An axe-wielding assailant strikes at the dead of night. A narrative detailing a father's revenge for a monstrous crime committed against his daughter. And at the trial when this man is eventually caught, a plea of insanity, of diminished criminal capacity. And at the helm of it, a former professional South African rugby player turned serial killer. But this is not a movie script, this is real life. And this is the disturbing case of Pendile Joseph Nshongwan. Hello and welcome to Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast hosted by me, Bella Monsoon. I'm a mental health professional, so Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast, explores real-life crimes occurring within South Africa from a psychological viewpoint. Every week, a new case is examined and we delve headfirst into the motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me weekly on a journey into the minds behind the madness as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. I usually start my episodes discussing the childhood of the perpetrator, and that's how they came to be in the situation that we find them in. But this time, I feel as though you need to hear about the actions of this man before I tell you who he was. And so, I'm switching it up. Buckle up, because this is one terrifying ride. The first incident I'm going to speak about would only be linked to this perpetrator many months later. On the 26th of November 2010, at around 8.30pm, Mkleli Tolo was walking in Yellowwood Park when a man stopped next to him in a silver-grey vehicle and asked him if he knew a girl named Zama. Upon responding that he didn't, the man had proceeded to get out of his vehicle and hit him repeatedly on the head with a baton until he passed out. As he regained consciousness a few seconds later, his attacker was on top of him. Luckily, a neighbor had heard his screams and they switched their house and outside lights on. This caused the man to flee. Amazingly, Tolo was able to take down the make and registration number of the vehicle before it drove away. He made it home, but he passed out again and was taken to hospital. He described the suspect as a well-built black male, almost as if he was a wrestling or rugby player. And he said that he would definitely remember his face if he saw him again. And this perpetrator was just getting started because two days later on the 28th of November, he kidnapped a young female. This woman was 25 years old at the time. She had been visiting her sister in Durban when this man had approached her and greeted her as though he knew her, offering her a lift home. She had accepted his offer after much persuasion, but she had become nervous after he drove straight past her destination. He then placed her hand on his groin and he asked her if she had ever slept with a Kosa boy. She answered that she hadn't and so he had told her that she was going to find out what it would be like later that day. He took her into his home, straight through the back of the house and into his bedroom. He then locked the door. Terrified, she asked to go to the bathroom, but he refused, then undressed. He then instructed her to do the same. He proceeded to question her about her whereabouts that past Friday. She responded that she had been in church, but he had then accused her of having other boyfriends and being a liar. Keep in mind, she had no idea who this man was, and they had never met before. He threatened her, 
telling her that he had murdered other people before her and he would do the same to her. And so, fearing for her life, she undressed and got into the bed. For three days, he held this woman captive in his room, raping her on multiple occasions. And I would like to just mention here that he shared this home with his family. He wasn't living alone. His mood fluctuated rapidly. One minute he was soft and kind, and the next he was screaming and punching the walls. And honestly, who knows what would have happened if she didn't end up doing what she did. On the second day of her captivity, he had taken her out of the room and to the vehicle in an attempt to go and visit an acquaintance. Whilst by the garage, she had tried to run away, but he had grabbed her, slapped her and pulled her into the vehicle. He then drove to Mlazi and tried to secure a firearm from someone he had called on his cell phone. He did not succeed, however, and so the two had returned to his home where he had then raped her again. On the third day, this poor woman was woken up by this man screaming at her that she had infected his child with AIDS. He also told her that he would kill her if she didn't end her relationship with her other boyfriends. Terrified and thinking on her feet, this woman had begged him to go and fetch her belongings. He had eventually agreed and so he had left the room to prepare to leave. In these frantic moments, this woman had found not only his ID book, but also a slip from Debonair's pizza. A slip with his address on it. And so she had kept the two items on her. When he returned, the two had then left to go to her apartment. Along the way, this man had told her that he would kill her other boyfriends so they could be together. As they arrived at her block of flats, she had told this man that she would only be a few minutes, and so she had left, walking towards her apartment. In a twist of fate, a friend of hers with a notepad on him bumped into her, and she immediately asked him to take down the registration number of the silver grey car outside, which he did. She then asked her friend to tell the guards at their apartment block not to let the man in the vehicle inside. And just like that, she escaped, with her life intact. She went straight to the police and handed over the evidence that she had. Literally an ID book with her rapist's identity and a slip with his address. But you know what? Nothing came of it. Nothing was done. And it would be months later when the samples that were taken after her attack would finally be linked to this perpetrator. And so it would seem that this man went quiet, for the next few months at least. That was until the 20th of March, 2011. On the 20th of March, 2011, Tembin Kozi Kulu was in Impangeni for his father's funeral. At the time, he had been living in Durban with his girlfriend, Mabel Tlamini. And it was Mabel who he had called at around 9.15pm that evening to let her know that he was almost home as his work had asked him to come in the next day, which so happened to be a public holiday. He told his girlfriend that he was at the fuel station in Montclair and he asked her if she needed anything before he came home. She asked him to buy a loaf of bread. And although he was so very close to their home, that was the last conversation that she would ever have with him. And the truth of what had happened just minutes after that phone call would later be divulged by Gildred Donnelly, who was driving along Kenyon Howden Road on his way home. 
He had spotted two people along the side of the road. One was on the pavement and one was in the road, in what initially appeared to be the throes of a fight. The man standing up was wearing black tracksuit pants, a black t-shirt, a black cap, and he was wielding an axe. He was tall, well-built, and by the way he was swinging the axe at the person on the ground, appeared to be quite strong. Yeah, you heard me correctly. Donnelly would later describe the body as almost bouncing from the blows that it was receiving. Donnelly, in pure shock, continued to drive home and, once there, immediately called the police. He then returned to the scene of the crime where he found another man who had stopped. This man was Peter Goldie. He had also been driving home when he spotted a commotion on the side of the road. Initially, he had thought it was a snake that was being beaten, but as he approached and got closer, he saw it was a larger object and so he thought that it may be a dog. However, as he drove past the scene, he realized that it was a human being. In shock, he had driven about 50 meters down the road where he had pulled over and immediately called the police. By the time he turned around and drove back to the scene of the crime, which was incredibly brave if I might add, the perpetrator was nowhere to be seen. But what would be incredibly vital for police later was his memory of seeing a small grey silver vehicle leaving the scene. Although the perpetrator had left, the victim was still there, his head no longer attached to his body. And 11 meters away, lying in the middle of the road squashed, was the loaf of bread that Tembin Kozi had been bringing home for his girlfriend Mabel. The two witnesses, Goldie and Donnelly, waited at the scene of the crime for police to arrive. The police had arrived at around 10pm and they processed the scene of the crime, speaking to the witnesses and getting a thorough and detailed description of what they had seen. Also, at around 10pm, Mabel had become incredibly worried, as her boyfriend should have been home by that time, seeing as he was just a suburb or two over. So she did what any normal person would, she called her boyfriend. An officer on the scene had heard the phone ringing, and so he had answered it. He then proceeded to tell Mabel that he was a police officer, that her boyfriend was with him, and that he would bring him to her shortly. I'm sorry, what? Mabel, however, realized that something was incredibly wrong, and so she began to cry. But that was that for that phone call. Fifteen minutes later, she had called again. And yet again, his phone was answered, by another police officer, albeit. But this time, the response was even worse. The police officer told Mabel that Timben Kozi was sleeping, and that when he woke up, he would bring him to her. I'm quite shocked by this narrative altogether. Not only is it highly unethical to lie to the families of the victims, but it's also incredibly traumatizing. Mabel knew in her gut that something was wrong, and so she had approached her employer, Cornelius Barnard, whose property she lived on, and she told him her fears about her boyfriend. He then drove her to Montclair Police Station. On the way there, they drove past the scene of the crime, with the body covered in a foil blanket, and in her heart and mind, Mabel knew that this was her partner. After reaching the police station, she was told that the crime scene was the one they had just driven past, 
and so they had turned around and returned there. At that point, the body was uncovered, and amidst the blood and the disturbing crime scene, Mabel recognised Tembin Corsi's clothing. And in those moments, her world forever changed. But for the perpetrator, he was just getting started. The next day, on the 21st of March 2011, at around 9.40pm, Sianda Emmanuel Kumalo was returning home in Umlazi KZN after visiting his father. A silver vehicle on the other side of the road had driven past him, turned around and then stopped behind him. Siander noticed out of the corner of his eye a man get out of the vehicle and start walking behind him and so he had decided to walk in the road instead of on the sidewalk. The man had then moved into the road too, grabbed him by the collar of his shirt and then removed an axe from a red plastic bag. Siander managed to break free but the man had thrown the axe at him hitting him in the back. During this time, the only thing that his attacker had said to him was, hey you, come here. Yeah, like anyone is going to walk themselves over to an axe-wielding attacker. Cool. Siander would later describe this man as being tall, well-built and dressed in dark clothing. One day later, this man struck again. At around 10.30pm, Kangalani Felix Mdluli was walking home along Hull Road from his place of work, Sasko Lamontville, when he saw a silver-grey Peugeot with Eastern Cape number plates drive by slowly. The driver had eyed him out, and immediately Kangalani had felt uncomfortable. The car had driven on a bit before making a U-turn, passing him again and then parked on the pavement next to the road. A well-built man had exited the vehicle. He would later be described as being around 33 to 35 years old, wearing a navy or black tracksuit, a khaki cap and white tackies. The man was also left-handed and he exited the vehicle with a plastic bag in his hand. To Kangalani, it was clear that there was something heavy in this bag, but he had assumed it was a firearm. The man had then approached him, speaking Isizulu but in a Johannesburg accent, acting as though he knew him. He then accused Kangalani of sleeping with his daughter and giving her AIDS. Does that story sound familiar? He then pulled an axe out of the bag and he swung it at Kangalani's head. The man ducked in the nick of time and the axe had hit his right ribcage. He then ran, ran for his life with this man chasing him. But he was successful and he managed to get away, much to the dismay of his attacker. The next victim would unfortunately suffer a far different fate. In the evening of that very same day, Timber Butelezi came across a victim missing his head, the head nowhere to be seen. This unknown man, wearing a bright yellow shirt and dark blue pants, with only one shoe, was lying in the middle of a traffic circle in Lamontsville. Temba immediately called the police. On the ground, there were marks in the tar from where an axe had been used, and there was a trail of blood leading into the road. Very soon after inquiries were made at nearby homes by the police, the victim was identified. He was Paulus Thongwa, a 47-year-old man who had been living with his wife of 30 years. 
The last time she had seen him was that afternoon, when he had left for work at the Mirabank KFC outlet. In a disturbing but ironic twist, it was in a dumpster advertising that very same KFC outlet where Paulus's head was later discovered by a homeless man searching for food. In the early hours of the morning, his wife made the heartbreaking identification. As she was taken, not to the mortuary as is common practice, but rather to the scene of the discovery. Once again, although the circumstances differed, two of these victims' partners had undergone yet another level of trauma. This was directly as a result of the way the matter was handled after the crimes by certain police officials. That being said, shortly after this incident, an incredible task team was formed, and they went house to house in the vicinity to search for witnesses. And that was how they came across Nombuse Hadebe, who was living on the corner near the circle and who was pregnant at the time. She had indeed seen something, but she was too scared to come forward. Her testimony would later be vital in the trial that would follow. So here's what she had seen. That night, she had woken up to a commotion, shouting and the sound of a hard object slamming into the road near the circle. She went to her window and this is when she saw a person bending over and hacking at something. She then saw this person disappear and return with an orange plastic packet. The man had bent down, picked up something, placed it in the plastic bag and then walked away. She continued to watch and the man had returned, this time with a white plastic bag. He continued hacking at the object on the ground before picking up some items and walking in the direction of the township where his vehicle was situated. As she continued to watch, a short while later, she saw a silver vehicle approach the circle. The driver of the car was a black male with a big physique and a clean-shaven face, and she was not the only one who had seen something. Two security guards from a nearby building had a clear vantage point of the incident, and they later confessed to witnessing the attack. But they feared that it was a Muti murder, and so they were hesitant to come forward. They had heard a scream, seen a hunched figure hitting something with a stick, and saw a silver vehicle with an open door nearby. The driver had driven away and returned twice, returning to the scene to pick something up and place it in a plastic bag before driving off for a final time. But the night, or morning, was not yet over for this perpetrator. At around 3am that morning, and after the discovery of the last body, a commotion had occurred, and Sithle Mplongo was witness to it all. He had just gone to bed when he had heard someone pleading, Haibo, puti! He went to the window to investigate and saw a person with something in his hand chasing another. The attacker was wearing dark clothing and looked around 30 or 40 years old. He was clean-shaven, tall, well-built and bald. The attacker caught his victim and hit him. The victim had fallen to the ground and it was at this point that the onlooker had realized that it was not a stick in the attacker's hand but rather an axe. He immediately alerted his wife and he opened his window in a bid to scare the attacker off. But no such luck. The attacker, now on top of his victim, continued the onslaught. The sound of metal on bone rang in his ears 
as he called out, Hey, Wena, Wenzani, which basically translates to, Hey, you, what are you doing? This appeared to work as the attack stopped and the attacker turned around, ran to the onlooker's building before changing his mind and running in the direction of the town. Sitle then called 10111, the emergency response line for the police in South Africa. The victim would later be identified as Simon Mokosonke Ngiri. Up until this point, there had not been much about the attacks in the media. This, however, changed on the 27th of March, when the Sunday Tribune ran a front-page article on the grisly killing spree. It mentioned that there was an axe-wielding father on a mission to seek revenge for the rape and HIV infection of his daughter. Not only were police officials quoted, but the journalists had also approached and interviewed one of the surviving victims. And so the exact MO of the attacks and other pertinent information was leaked into the public domain. And then an online news network shared a similar story. And I don't need to tell you twice how I feel about irresponsible journalism. That could be a whole episode on its own. Let me briefly explain why I say what I say. Not only is there the risk of copycat killers creating and mimicking these crimes and crime scenes, thus making it harder to find the real perpetrator, but also these articles can also potentially interfere with the confessions of the suspects. I mean, they could say that they're only confessing based on what they've read in the newspapers. Or you even get cases where individuals who did not commit these crimes will issue full confessions just going off the information they've seen in the media. It's a thing, a very weird thing, but a thing nonetheless. The reaction from many who also read the online article was in support for this vigilante father who was avenging the crime that had been done to his daughter, with many agreeing that they would do the same thing if they were in that position. So yeah, there was also that strange turn of events. In the background, the task team aided by renowned forensic psychologist and overall badass Gerard Labashkachny had deduced that these attacks were most likely the result of a serial murderer. This conclusion was met for several reasons. The most prominent being that the cases were in a small geographical area. The victims were all adult black males who were on their own at night. The attacker was described by all witnesses in the same manner as a tall, well-built man wielding an axe. And lastly, all the murders featured decapitation or at least an attempt thereof. The knowledge that this team possessed regarding the behaviours and actions of serial offenders allowed them to stay one step ahead of the investigation. And this is vital because in such situations, the more time wasted, the more potential victims. And so, identikits that were compiled by the witness descriptions were posted on flyers, and the description of the vehicle was distributed at nearby petrol stations. And after the sister of the first victim, Tolo, had come forward, the task team also had a vehicle make and registration to go off of. And so they tracked it to its registered owner, Mrs. Letlaka, who lived in Yellowwood Park. And on the 28th of March, everything came to a head. 
After the team had approached the neighbors next door, it was established that there was a well-built African male who very well could be a rugby player living in that home. And so a group of around 20 policemen proceeded to the premises. Most of them approached the front of the home, but two officers went to the back. And it's a good thing they did, because as the police officials knocked on the front door, the back door swung open and the two men came face to face with a huge hulking figure. Luckily, things didn't get physical, although the suspect had such huge forearms that normal cuffs just wouldn't work, and so leg irons had to be used instead. And with that arrest, the officers officially met the man they had been searching for, Pendile Joseph Nchongwana. It turned out that this was his mother's house. After explaining why they were arresting her son, the team requested permission to search the house, which she gave. On the property, the Chevrolet Avio was not there, as it had been in an accident. However, a silver Opel Corsa, a courtesy car from Ava's car rental, was there. It had been provided to Mrs. Letlaka by her insurance company while her vehicle underwent repairs. And after speaking to her, it was apparent that Pendile had often made use of both vehicles. In the backyard of the house, there was a foul smell of rotting meat coming from a dog kennel just outside Pendile's room. In the kennel, blood-stained clothing, an axe, and what appeared to be rotting meat was discovered. Mrs. Letlaka confirmed that there had been no dog on the property since around November of the previous year. And so the entire area became a crime scene and experts were called in. No DNA was unfortunately able to be isolated from either the rotting meat or the Victrix handheld axe with its 12 to 15 centimeter long blade. Inside the kennel was a black plastic trash bag, a pair of blue jeans, a cap, socks, an orange bin bag, a green plastic bag, jersey, trainers and a plastic container. Besides these items, there was also a pair of red, black and silver Nike trainers, but the toe cap of the right shoe was missing. Keep this in mind because it's going to play an important role very soon. After specially trained dogs were brought onto the premises, it was established that no bodies were found inside or outside, but the blood detector dog did indicate the presence of blood in Pendile's bathroom. Later forensic analysis would showcase unknown female and male DNA. And sneaking a peek into the future, about a year after Pendile's conviction, the male DNA would be linked to a murder case in Bayview, a neighboring suburb. But unfortunately, there would not be enough evidence to lay charges. The female's blood would never be identified. On the vehicle front, blood was found in the damaged boot section of the Opel Corsa, which had luckily been held whilst awaiting repairs from an apparent accident with a bus. Forensic testing revealed the blood found to be human. The serial murderer had been caught, and now it was time for court. 
Now, I usually start every episode by explaining the childhood of the perpetrator, but as you've probably noticed, and as I mentioned, I haven't done that. So before we go any further, and before I delve into the court proceedings after Pendile's arrest, let's understand a little bit more about the man who would later become known as the axe killer. Pendile Joseph Nchongwana was born to a pretty normal upper middle class family, with his mother being a law lecturer and his father a former diplomat. His father was also well known, Liston Nshongwana, who played for the African Springboks from 1972 and even toured Italy with the team in 1974. Pendile had a close, good relationship with his parents and he attended a private school. In his later years, he had attended Settlers Agricultural High School in Limpopo, matriculating in 1997. In 1996, a year prior, he had played for the South African Barbarians rugby team. And a year after matriculating, he would be one of the first black players to join the Blue Bulls Rugby Union. He would then play 28 games for them between 1998 and 2001. He even ended up playing for the South African under-21 rugby team. Former Springbok Bevan Fortain, who played with Pendile in the Eagles, would later say that he was a good guy and that he was always the joker of the team. During his time playing professional rugby, he had also enrolled at the Schwane University of Technology to study sports management and marketing up until 2001. He had a break in his rugby career from 2009 to 2010, and he had approached the CEO of the Blue Bulls to make a comeback. But before anything could come into volition, he had disappeared off the map again. And only later would everyone realize what he had been up to. But here's what had been happening just prior to the murders when he was on and off the map per se. During the months and years preceding the murders, his mental health, which had always been tumultuous, had taken a turn for the worst. At the time of his arrest, he was a father. That much is true. However, he didn't have an adult daughter who was infected with HIV. Oh no, he was the father to a five-year-old boy. And so when all of this came to light, his mental health took the spotlight. It would begin with his diagnoses. In 2009, he was diagnosed at R.K. Khan Hospital with Schizoaffective Disorder Bipolar Type. So, a very quick explanation for the listeners who are not familiar with this diagnosis. In essence, Schizoaffective Disorder is a combination of symptoms of schizophrenia combined with symptoms of a mood disorder, such as depression or bipolar disorder. The schizophrenia symptoms only appear when the mood disorder symptoms are not present. The symptoms similar to schizophrenia experienced are often classed into three main groups, positive, negative, and behavioral symptoms. Positive symptoms do not denote good symptoms per se, but rather allude to symptoms that are not normally present and those related to psychosis. This would be hallucinations, audio or visual in nature, and or delusions, 
false beliefs that persist even in the face of evidence. Negative symptoms refer to deficits such as a lack of emotion or effect or the inability or unwillingness to complete ordinary tasks. Lastly, cognitive symptoms include disordered thoughts, difficulty thinking or remembering, and often a lack of awareness of one's own illness. On the bipolar aspect of the diagnosis, the patient would experience mania or manic symptoms, which entails them having an extreme amount of energy and an exaggerated self-confidence. Sometimes the highs these individuals will experience can result in extreme irritability, anger, aggression, and even risky behaviors. The presence of these mood disorder symptoms are the main differentiating aspects when comparing schizoaffective disorder to schizophrenia. So keeping all of that in mind, the main treatment, in addition to therapy, would be antipsychotics for the schizophrenia-like symptoms, as well as mood stabilizers to balance the emotions experienced as a result of the extreme moods. These groups of medications are often taken together. But back to Pendile. It appears that he did not stick to his prescribed medication. And so the following year, in July of 2010, he was readmitted to RK Khan Hospital. According to the hospital notes, he seemed to be experiencing persecutory or paranoid delusions, an elevated mood and overactivity. He was then transferred to King George V Hospital, but he absconded from the ambulance and somehow managed to make his way to Cape Town, where he stayed with a family member. In August of that year, he was admitted to Falkenberg Psychiatric Hospital and once again diagnosed with bipolar mood disorder. He was discharged the following month, and so he had made his way back to Durban. In December of 2010, he was once again admitted to King George V Hospital with symptoms such as auditory hallucinations, persecutory delusions, and poor sleep. A month later, he was discharged. The last diagnosis on his record prior to the discharge, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar type, most recent episode, mania, with psychotic features. However, upon being discharged in January, he was found to be stable and there were no reports of aggressive or inappropriate behavior. His mother was only concerned that he was isolating himself. He did, however, visit the hospital on two occasions for his follow-up appointments, namely the 17th of January and the 14th of Feb. Now, remember the situation where he had locked the young woman in his room? Well, in February, he had spoken to the psychiatrist and told her of the incident. His mother, who obviously knew this narrative, had brushed the entire thing off, saying that his girlfriend had probably just misunderstood his intentions. The psychiatrist deduced that his behavior was probably just due to his persecution complex. And so, life went on. And Pendile would go on to wreak havoc in the area, right up until his arrest. Which brings us back to the court proceedings. After the news hit the media, the community were up in arms, protesting at Pendile receiving bail. National Police Commissioner at the time, Becky Tele, was publicly congratulating the task team that helped capture this serial killer. But little did everyone know, 
Whilst Pendile sat in prison awaiting his trial, yet another victim was still to be discovered. Three days after his arrest, on the 1st of April 2011, a man walking his dog happened to walk in the area of the railway line at his dog's insistence. What he discovered there was not only a terrible stench in the air, but the decapitated body of an adult black male. He immediately called the police. The head of the man was no longer recognizable when it was found. For a split moment, the task team thought that perhaps they had the wrong man. But it was soon apparent that decomposition had already set in and the time of death was estimated to be around the same time period as the other murders. And near this unknown man's body, there was the toe cap of a trainer. Remember the pair of shoes that were found in Pendile's home? Remember how I said the shoe was missing its toe cap? Well, it was this very piece of evidence that linked this case to Pendile. And it was the same detective who had worked the previous crime scene who was able to make the deduction. Unfortunately, to this day though, that male victim has never been identified. On the 6th of April, an identity parade was held to allow the witnesses the chance to identify the suspect they had seen or interacted with. After the first witness had positively identified Pendile though, he had fallen to the ground in what appeared to be a seizure or a fit. After paramedics who were called in could find absolutely nothing wrong with him, he was then taken back to the station and the identity parade was abandoned. Pendile had no history of seizures, just by the way. And unfortunately, that single positive identification would not make its way into later court records. And so it did appear that the right man had been caught and the trial was set to proceed in November of 2011. But first, because of Pendile's history, a hearing into whether he was competent to stand trial as well as to be held accountable for his actions had to take place. In simple terms, can the accused understand the proceedings, thus allowing him to consult with his lawyer and prepare his defense? And in terms of accountability, was there a mental illness that was present at the time of the crimes that affected his ability to understand right from wrong and thus act accordingly? From the 24th of June to the 21st of July 2011, Pendile was under observation at Fort Napier Psychiatric Hospital. He was assessed by three psychiatrists and a psychologist. Yep, in this case, the aim was to be thorough. One of the professionals, Dr. John Dunn, stated that he concurred with the schizoaffective disorder bipolar type diagnosis. He found Pendile fit to stand trial and stated from the available facts there was no evidence to indicate that Pendile was not completely aware of his actions and behavior at the time of the attacks. Dr. Bertram Brayshaw's report stated the same diagnosis, although he said paranoid schizophrenia could not be excluded. He added that Pendile was intelligent and articulate, polite and cooperative. He stated that he was also fit to stand trial. However, when it came to criminal capacity and accountability, he was reluctant to express an opinion due to insufficient independent information about Pendile's behavior at the time. 
Dr. Subaya Moodley would report the same diagnosis as the other doctors, and he found Pendile capable of understanding court proceedings. He too, however, stated he lacked enough information to comment on Pendile's criminal capacity at the time of the murders. Professor Anthony Pillay, the clinical psychologist, did not make a diagnosis in his report, but he stated although Pendile was fit to stand trial, Pendile's mental disorder very likely impaired his reasoning ability and ability to respond to others in his environment. And so, although a consensus on criminal capacity was not reached, by the end of the pre-trial investigation, around February of 2012, Pendile was found fit to stand trial. During the trial, DNA of the kidnapped female victim was showcased, along with DNA from the Opal Corsa, which matched one of the victims, Paulus. The blood of Simon Ngidi was also found in the vehicle. The forensic pathologist who conducted post-mortem examinations on the victims after being presented with an identical axe to the one Pendile had used was able to confidently say that the wounds were consistent with such a weapon. The witnesses' descriptions of the perpetrator were entered into evidence as they all described him in a similar manner, wearing similar clothing, clean-shaven, with a large physique and a penchant for decapitation. Despite all the evidence that was presented, Pendile pleaded not guilty to all the charges, stating that he had no recollection of the murders and he lacked the criminal capacity to commit such offences. His defence, therefore, was that he could not possibly be held responsible for these murders by reason of a mental illness, known as delusional disorder. The trial that had begun on the 19th of November had all state testimony and evidence concluded on the 22nd of April 2013, but it would take another year before the case was finalised. Pendile's defence lawyer brought up all kinds of strange objections during this time, from accusations of manipulated crime scene photographs to issues with the prosecution team raising valid objections. He would also go on to accuse the victim who was raped of lying and making up events. Yeah, I kid you not. For Pendile's defense, two witnesses were called. Pendile's sister and a specialist psychiatrist. His sister spoke about how she experienced his mental illness. She would go on to state how in the period leading up to the murders, his behavior was inconsistent. She stated... Sometimes he phases between someone we know and being a complete stranger. Professor Gungart, a medical doctor for 48 years and a specialist psychiatrist for 33 years, who had also been involved in treating Shabir Sheikh when he was incarcerated in prison, saw Pendile for a total of three sessions. And in the first session, Pendile had not even spoken one word to him. But from these observations and court evidence, he diagnosed Pendile with a delusional disorder and suspicious paranoid personality traits. In his expert testimony, he concluded that when the delusions came thick and fast, Pendile could lose touch with reality and thus not recall his actions during the psychotic break. Mm-hmm. Sounds... Not sus in the least. After countless delays, four months later, during his cross-examination, this very same professor stated that he disagreed with the other psychiatrist's diagnoses. 
All of these expert witnesses, you know, the psychiatrist he disagreed with, would later take to the stand once again and state that upon hearing and observing further evidence throughout the trial, that they believed Pendile was of sound mind and capacity during the crimes. And then after almost two years, judgment was finally handed down. Oh, and Professor Gungat was described as an unimpressive witness whose evidence was unreliable and of very little cogent value. Ouch. Pendile Nchongwana was found guilty on all nine charges. When his fingerprints were being taken after the judgment, he turned to the leader of the task team that had caught him, smiled and said, You've caught a big fish. During sentencing, which took place in December of 2014, Pendile's father apologized to the families of the victims and spoke of his son's mental health problems. A clinical psychologist, Philippa Stiles, would go on to state that Pendile was capable of being rehabilitated and that he was sincerely remorseful and should be incarcerated at Fort Napier Hospital rather than in prison. Um, it kind of did appear throughout the trial that remorse was not really part of Pendile's emotional scope. But nevertheless, Stiles had said, He is a candidate for rehabilitation because he was a gentle and respectful person before these crimes, and he has taken responsibility for his actions. The judge, however, concluded that Pendile had taken steps to cover his tracks and avoid detection specifically targeting those who were alone, signaling the premeditated and brutal nature of his callous actions. The defense also tried to argue that the rape was not the worst type of rape. Yeah, I won't even go there. At the end of it all, Pendile Joseph Nchongwana was sentenced to five terms of life imprisonment for the four murders and the multiple rapes of the female victim. He also received 14 years for the other crimes, four years for each of the two attempted murders, two years for assault with intent to do grievous bodily harm, and four years for kidnapping. All of these terms would be served concurrently. The judge rejected any possibility of rehabilitation and referred to the testimony of the expert witnesses which stated that the accused was dangerous. The judge had further said, On the facts of this case, I do not accept that the accused is genuinely remorseful. At most, he regrets being caught out. And so, one would believe that that was that, right? Wrong. In 2015, Pendile's mother submitted an application for him to be admitted to a mental institution instead of being kept in prison. The application papers said the judge should have not dismissed the medical evidence of psychiatrist Professor Abubakar Gangat that Nshongwana had a delusional disorder and could not be held responsible for his actions. Needless to say, the application was not successful. But they were not done there. More recently, in June of 2021, Pendile attempted to appeal his conviction and sentence, but that attempt was also unsuccessful. I get the feeling that this isn't the last we've heard from him though. But until then, let's delve a little deeper. 
From a psychological perspective, this case really intrigued me. If for no other reason than the fact that mental illness is often so misunderstood. Even by those within the field of law, who very well may often come into contact with cases involving mental health issues. Especially within South Africa, given the sheer insufficient access to mental health resources and assistance plaguing the country. I feel like people understand the term to plead insanity, meaning that one could commit a crime knowing very well what they're doing and then afterwards just act unwell or a term that I really dislike, crazy, in order to get off scot-free. The thing that many actually don't understand though is that being found to have diminished criminal capacity due to mental instability is not that common. Simply having a mental illness, diagnosed or undiagnosed, and committing a crime is not enough to absolve responsibility of said crime. But of course, that doesn't stop multiple perpetrators and lawyers of attempting to use that defense tactic though. Another aspect that stood out so clearly for me in this case were the very obvious police failings. Whilst the task team did an amazing job, some of the officers who were involved in the different victims' cases were a bit on the uh, side for me. I mean, months before the murders began, the female victim had approached the police with not only her experience and physical evidence, but also clear documents that illustrated her perpetrator's name and address. And for some reason, absolutely nothing was done. And honestly, if something had been done, chances are things would have turned out very differently. Not only for the victims, but for Pendile too. Perhaps he would have received the treatment he so desperately needed, and the outcome would be so very different. It's an unfortunate reality as a South African that this woman's experience was more than likely not an isolated case. Just this week on my TikTok account, I spoke about the case of Bukhabo Paul, a beautiful little four-year-old girl who was brutally murdered. And the man thought to be behind her attack, according to CCTV footage, well, he was out on 2,000 rand bail after allegedly raping a nine-year-old girl. Yes, an alleged child rapist was given bail. That in itself is another major issue that is facing the country. How can we possibly feel safe if suspected and in many cases known criminals are allowed to walk the streets, engage with our children and assimilate into our environment? How do you know that the person living next door to you or even down the road from you the person who knows you, your family, or even your routine is not to be trusted. Until next week, stay safe, stay vigilant, and stay the amazing human beings that I know each and every single one of you are. Bye!